candidly, we got our first bad review of the podcast. I think it's astounding that we made it to 32 episodes without having gotten one before this. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. I'm pretty surprised by that, honestly. (laughs) No, yeah, the review was that (laughs) we are racist against white people, elitist against rich people, and throw around terms like fascism so haphazardly it's bone chilling. Literally an awesome review. That is not a bad review. We should make it our Instagram bio. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, no lies were told. I think we do give off that exact vibe. If the word fascism wasn't haphazardly thrown around, I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone trying to hang out and haphazardly throw around the word fascism? Or? Name a time, name a place. <laughs> Well, actually, that is the part that I wanted to address because it was specifically an issue with our, our previous episode where we said that um, minimalism has fascist roots. And the commenter literally thought we were just pulling that out of our asses, which, I mean, to be fair, I understand why people would think that we do kind of just like throw shit at the wall sometimes. Never without an academic base, though. Sometimes without an academic base. The sources trust me. <laughs> well, uh, this is a democratic podcast. We care about what you have to say, and we wanted to address the concerns. We might not be able to fix being racist against white people or elitist against rich people, but we can compromise by proving we know enough about fascism to throw that word around. I wish all compromises ended with me getting to talk about fashion in World War II. I'm Evangelia. And I'm Emily. And welcome to What's Gonna Happen. Okay, so I have a theory. I love your theories. My theory is that some boomers reacted to the Holocaust the way that some Gen Z reacted to 9-11. Okay, elaborate. Okay, so I believe that if you're born after a major historical event and kind of grow up in the shadow of it, you know, your parents are constantly talking about it. All of these changes in the world are blamed Mm -hmm. on it. The beginning of your era is defined by that shift? Right. Like, the beginning of the world, as you know it, is signified by this thing that happened when you weren't really there. So you don't have the same sensitivity to it because you weren't there. And you know it's important, but you can't fathom exactly how important, and that's frustrating, especially because your primary understanding of the event comes from your annoying parents' first-hand accounts, and you're, like, a moody teenager who's mad at your parents all the time and probably doesn't think they're very smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or they're the type to have, like, skewed beliefs and, and use that major event as an example to support their beliefs. Like, they can be openly xenophobic or Islamophobic and blame it on 9-11 or, you know, with the uh, future post-COVID babies, I'm sure parents will prop up their anti-vax beliefs on the pandemic. Like, people infuse these events with a lot of personal... With ideology. With ideology. Always with ideology. Exactly. And you're so sick of the rhetoric around it, you can't process the magnitude of change. All the old heads in your life are always like, what you know about this? Yeah. (laughs) What you know about 9-11? Right, exactly. Were you even there, bro? Like, they always do that shit. (laughs) They always say, oh, if you're not young enough, you're too young to remember 9-11. Right. And so naturally, you start making fun of it. Now, I don't really condone 9-11 or Holocaust jokes, you know. I'll say that. But just formulaically, they do kind of have all the criteria of something to be joked about. I mean, like, something a lot of old people care about, something everyone universally knows about, something that causes major shifts in perspective, super dark, super political. It's like, of course, there's going to be satire about that, like, coming out of everyone's ears and nose. Exactly. Plus, those really piss people off, especially your parents who love you and you hate. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, what better way to get back at your bitch mom for not cutting the crust off the snacks she served you in your gamer chair than to make fun of the worst event she's ever witnessed firsthand? I do it every day. <laughs> so I guess to tie this theory into our episode topic, the way our generation makes 9-11 memes is kind of reminiscent of the way boomers and Gen Xers satirized Nazi iconography in clothes and movie and music. Exactly. That is my point. Mm-hmm. That Nazi chic was to boomers what, like, 9-11 memes are to Gen Z. Like, Gen Z will make jeans that are printed with a pattern of the Twin Towers burning or post, like, happy 9-11 on their mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. We have a My Hungry Ass Out This Was 9-11 meme on our Instagram. Oh, yeah. We're no better. You know, we're simple-minded Zoomers fated to sardonically mock the event that traumatized us while we were in the womb. Isn't that the point <laughs> of life? Yeah. No, it's true. Although I... Look, I'm personally, I'm really saddened by 9-11. That's very brave of you. Yeah, I know. I know that's a hot take amongst the dirtbag left that we so accidentally appealed to. But I I have family members who got really sick because they were at that scene of impact. And, you know, it gave them lifelong health complications. So I'm kind of, I'm affected by the 9-11 stories, I will say. You know, uh, plus when I was a baby, I used to scream that the buildings were burning and I had nightmares about it all the time in my sleep. So I'm either a reincarnated 9-11 victim or an empath from birth. And those are really... The two genders. <laughs> I will also add that my family was affected by the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Oh, same. <laughs> yeah. Same. But, you know, the parallel between, like, what boomers and Jaxers responded to the Holocaust, it, it makes sense because the way Gen Z has the disaffected edgelord thing going on, the 70s had the kind of anti-establishment punk thing going on. Exactly. The 70s alternative movement was largely about pissing people off. And if you're in England in the 70s, then your parents were the ones who lived through World War II and most likely fought in World War II. The war very much affected England. There were bombings. And this is also, you know, a big part of where the punk scene originated. So it's also where this idea of Nazi chic really took hold, has its roots. So can you, like, explain what Nazi chic is? Because it's kind of a crazy term (laughs) off the bat if you don't know what you're talking about. Like, explain how it kind of evolved through time. You could not have asked me a better question. This is one of those topics where, like, don't even bring this up around me. (laughs) Like, you're not going to get I don't think most people would, but... Um, Waiting for the day. Um, Yeah, so much to say. I wrote an essay on Nazi chic for school, but I mainly focused on the fashion aspect because I was too uncomfortable talking about the porn aspect in class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'd already humiliated yourself enough when you went to that Staples to print your poster board for and the black woman working there saw, like, I guess it went out of context, probably looked like a Nazi shrine. Yeah, I actually apologized when she unfurled it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's for a school project. Because it was, it was tits and swastikas. It That's was awesome. crazy. Um, I did get an A on that. So. That's good, and good I, for you. I That's have, signed off on by your professor. Yeah, but I haven't gone to that staple since, and I don't think I can ever go again. <laughs> um, but the porn aspect is actually a very important piece of the story, even though I didn't really go over it in my project. Well, I'll back up, actually, because where there is porn, there is always demand for porn. And this is actually the craziest thing I learned in my whole journey researching this topic. But the fetishization of Nazis and the Holocaust actually started in the Berlin fetish scenes because sex clubs were using SS uniforms as fetish outfits starting in the 1930s. Oh, kind of feels too soon, huh? (laughs) That's even before World War II. Literally immediately. The second the Nazis popped out, people were like, we need to fuck in these uniforms. (laughs) The quickness to depravity that humans are capable of knows no bounds. People were in the chambers, 
and the underground erotic society of Berlin <laughs> were in Gestapo uniforms freaking up. Oh my it god. Up. It's well, like, to be fair, they weren't quite in the chambers in the 1930s. More like yeah, being arrested for, you know, going against the regime. Yeah. Kingsters take the L once again. It kind of it's kind of reminiscent of Mia Khalifa doing terrorist porn after 9-11, though. It kind of reminds me of that. I guess hers was like ten years after. This was like kind of in the moment. It was like before. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, was like, it was on the come up. Yeah, like humans are bound to the cardinal rule of the internet, rule 34. If it exists, there is porn of right. it. Right. Yeah, I believe it was Newton who said that. <laughs> and this does kind of deviate from my thesis point a little because obviously these aren't the people reacting to their parents experiencing World War II. These are the parents. Yeah, and they were experiencing <laughs> World War II on many levels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it still feels important to mention because life imitates art, art imitates porn, and also, you know, there's different... When we talk about Nazi chic, there's different things. The punk aspect was kids reacting to their parents. The porn is sort of something different, but it's part of this story. It's, yeah, it's the taboo, you know? Porn is kind of, is, is a kind of satire. It's a satire that takes itself seriously in the context of sex, but in the greater artistic and cultural canon, porn is funny and unserious, and wearing an SS uniform while you pound out a twink is exactly the kind of shocking imagery that would later define the punk movement. You know, those seeds were kind of being planted, no pun intended. Right, right. <laughs> Porn and sex are often how people process taboos, like how mm. gay guys in the 50s were super into military insignia because, of course, there's that hyper-masculinity that gay guys tend to idealize, but also it was forbidden to be gay in the military, and also so many of them were. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we process taboo through art, too. It's so like you have these musicians and filmmakers and fashion designers running with Nazi chic, which makes sense because those art forms in particular that choose to synthesize fascism in this way... It are the mediums best known for establishing sex appeal. And and they kind of define the culture's, like, understanding of what's cool and what's sexy. And as we've said, the underlying sexual dynamics of fascism mixed with the taboo of referencing it all makes the style super alluring and deviant. Right, exactly. So basically, because there was this queer interest in military... The gays at, were drawn to the kinksters' practice of SS uniform fucking. So in the 60s and 70s, the, the gay kink scene, in the 60s and 70s gay kink scene, you start to see a lot of, like, iron crosses, Nazi-esque silhouettes and leather wear. Like, if you look at, a le like, the leather daddy outfit today, like, it's literally a Nazi uniform without the swastikas. Like, I cannot stress this enough. Wow, that's true. That yeah, is true. Look at, like, a leather daddy the next time you see one, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but the first time Nazi iconography was used outside of the sex context in America was actually in the 1950s with California surfers. Yes, we've talked about this. These are our old friends, the surf Nazis. In our How Fascism Has Entered the Mainstream episode, we kind of really deep dive into them. Uh, and th in many ways, the fascism entering the mainstream episode is kind of a sister episode to this one. So many of our episodes are fascist sister episodes. <laughs> it's true. We have like quintuplets at this point. We're John and Kate plus eight. Um, <laughs> plus yes. eight think pieces about fascism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, the California surf Nazis were kind of that first wave of edgy American teens who put swastikas on their surfboards to piss people off, which honestly, those puka shell necklaces piss me off more than the swastikas <laughs> ever could. It's so funny that like the surfers were the skaters of that era. Like the skate aesthetic is so much more in line with being like 
edgy. It, like, looks way more anti-establishment and, like, actually cool. But, like, how am I supposed to react when I'm being flipped off by a boy that looks like Malibu Barbie? No, literally. Come on. Like, when we saw those surfer guys in LA, I was like, I can't believe people actually look like this. Like, straight up beautiful Abercrombie and Fitch looking douchebags. Like, <laughs> I really, personally, I'm not taking shit from a kid that's sun-kissed and freckled with baby blue eyes and a strawberry curl. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had shit to dish out. Don't be fooled by their doll-like features. They were that generation. <laughs> <laughs> edgelords, I guess. Edgelords also being chads just doesn't sit right with me. Like, I think that's what it is at the end of the I day. I guess it's just like, they, we think of them as chads now, but back then, you know, I don't know. Yeah. They just wanted to surf. They really didn't want to do anything else. You yeah, know? I guess they were kind of bummy. Yeah, they were kind of bums in a way. Um, if you don't have the mouth breather, jaw, and long greasy hair, then you're not an edgelord. You're just a bad guy. It's what <laughs> we're saying now. <laughs> But yeah, there was one surfer who kind of pioneered the movement named Greg Knoll, and he's on record saying, quote, we'd paint the swastika on the boards to piss people off, which it did. So next time we'd paint two swastikas just to piss them off more, end quote. Mm-hmm. So that's like kind of the first instance of Nazi iconography being used to define the punk values of an American subculture. Yes, before punk was even a thing. Yeah. In the 1950s were right after World War II, obviously. So the reaction is almost immediate. I mean, like I said, people in the underground erotic society of Berlin were fucking in SS uniforms before World War II even started. But g- going back to the porn aspect, that this Nazi chic really took off kind of in the late 60s with the rise of exploitation films. Mm, yes. Love exploitation films. Oh, yes. For those of you who don't know, exploitation films are genre movies from the 60s and 70s that, like, very heavily lean into these taboos of certain subgroups. There's sex, drugs, and violence. There are a lot of subgenres, like black exploitation films, which were movies that led into, like, stereotypes and sexualization of black people. There's car exploitation, which is about sexy cars. Hippie exploitation is the same. Sexploitation is obvious. Teen exploitation is more obvious and super gross. You know, you get the idea. Yeah, they're basically trashy movies that feature, like, hardcore or softcore porn. My favorite movie of all time is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is a great example of an exploitation. Yeah, movie. that one has like all of it. Yeah, <laughs> Coffee is one of my favorite movies. That's a black exploitation film, and uh, they're super campy and fun. We should make one. Yeah, what's gonna happen? Exploitation film available on the Patreon. <laughs> So naturally, you know, given that these were about taboos of the time, sex, drugs, whatever, there was Nazi exploitation films. The first one was made in 1969, and it was called Love Camp 7, and it was porn. Cannot mm-hmm. stress this enough. Mm-hmm. It was just mm-hmm. porn. Mm-hmm. The plot... Was it hardcore or softcore, though? You know, I actually haven't seen it, so I can't tell you. Like, I could oh. tell you the most famous Nazi exploitation movie, I'll just say this, I have seen, and it is hardcore. But, um... I don't know if Love Camp 7 is hardcore or softcore, honestly. Mm-hmm. But it was You'll porn. have to fuck around and find out. The plot is that two female agents infiltrate a Nazi prison camp to obtain a scientist's secret, and then they, the rest is just porn. It's just porn. <laughs> I hate that. I'm curious. Oh, I, I wish too. Okay, after we finish this, let's crack some beers and watch it on the big TV. God, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> There's two bros watching Nazi exploitation films, drinking beers, nothing gay, just really living. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that one time that um, you guys wanted to watch a scary movie, so I put on Sallow. Yeah, I was like, girl, this is not that. Everyone was ready. Everyone was like with the popcorn under the blankets ready for the jump scares, and it was just like about like Italian fascism and sodomizing 16-year-old boys. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the most infamous film of the Nazi exploitation genre came out in 1975, and it was called Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, and it was... 
I cannot stress this enough, also porn. <laughs> it was about a sadistic Nazi female camp guard, actually based on a real woman named Ilse Koch, a.k.a. the Bitch of Butchenwald. Yeah. By the way, I looked her up for the episode, and in some pictures, she has the craziest BPD eyes and a surprisingly cunty blowout and all of that. I feel like I would love to see a RuPaul contestant play her on Snatch Game. <laughs> that would be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that I would fucking watch. But yeah. The, my biggest takeaway from learning about Nazi exploitation is that men are so horny that if you're a woman and you commit such heinous crimes against humanity that are so horrible to the point that the other people who are committing the same crimes against humanity are calling you a bitch, someone 30 years later will still make a porn about you. Yeah, I mean... People just, like, kind of thought Nazis were a little sexy. There were sexy male Nazis in media, too. Captain Nazi was a DC Comics villain in the 40s, and even though he's, like, a villain, he visually fits all the male superhero standards. Oh, wow, that's super interesting. I don't know anything about the comic side of things. I do know that Nazi exploitation films were inspired by Israeli porn comics from the 1950s called Stalags, which were just, like... Kind of like the movies, but just illustrated. Um, they were super mm. big in Israel. I don't know what that says about society. I feel like you know exactly what that says about society. Jews are perverts, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so now the Nazi sex appeal is established. It's kind of impressive that nothing can kill the Jewish perversion. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> they got like, they chaos, try, and they're like, but... we need to start making porn about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can kill us, but you can never kill our spirit. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, yes, these exploitation films evolved, and by the mid-70s, they moved into making artsy Nazi movies, the most Mm. famous being an arthouse Italian movie, which, if you think that men are the only people that can come up with perverted sex fantasy movies, you have never seen The Night Porter, directed by Liliana Cavini, a woman, about a concentration camp survivor who develops a sadomasochistic relationship with a guard. And the outfit she wears, basically she develops a sadomasochistic relationship with a guard and then sees him again in a hotel, like 13 years later or something like that. I don't know if it's exactly 13, and then they resume their relationship. Um, The outfit she wears in the most famous scene you may recognize because you've probably seen it in other places. It is a black SS cap, no shirt, no bra, tits out, suspenders covering the boobs, black cargo pants, and leather gloves. And there's a very famous picture that was like the poster for the movie. The hands were covering her breasts. Yeah, I know that picture. Right. That's where it's from. Later into the 70s, inspired by these films, back when Vivian Westwood was in her sex boutique era, she was selling shirts with swastikas on them, and her and Malcolm McLaren were kind of building the Sex Pistols brand. That's funny, because I don't think a lot of people know that the Sex Pistols were kind of an industry plant. Like, their edge was very manufactured in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were essentially created to sell the clothes. (laughs) Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren decided to give them swastika armbands to wear on a television performance right before the release of their album. So before they even had an album, they were, like, kind of doing that shock thing and defining themselves against the culture. Yes. Adam and the Ants has a song called Deutsche Girls. It's funny that it's about a Nazi, but it's also about a teenage girl, so it's just disgusting on two levels. Mm. Um, But it's a really catchy song. Um, And it was inspired by the Night Porter, just with the genders swapped. Motorhead was super into Nazi stuff. There's a lot of rock stars that were just so into collecting Nazi paraphernalia, like two of the members of the band Kiss. And I don't know if you've ever noticed anything about the Kiss logo. 
Oh, yeah, the... The S's the S- in the S- logo. S- you know, they have to change it when they're in Germany. Really? Yes, they have to have a different logo when they're in Germany because of the S's. Joy Division, which... This is my favorite fun fact to tell people at parties, in case you can't tell. I'm, like, really fun at parties. <laughs> Joy Division got their name from this book that Ian Curtis loved that came out in 1955 called House of Dolls. And this story is so sick on so many levels. This guy who survived the Holocaust wrote this book based on his sister's experience in a concentration camp. But, like, it was porn. Oh. <laughs> <coughs> I meant so much. That literally made you sick. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't pretend that I don't. Yeah, like, it it was smut. It was about these the brothels in concentration damn, camps. Bro. Which I don't know. Why do we have to do this every <laughs> time? Come on, guys. I don't know if they were actually called Joy Divisions, but in the book, the brothels were called Joy Divisions. But the brothels and concentration camps were real. Like, there were women who were made out to be sex slaves in concentration camps. That was a job you could be forced to do in a concentration camp, Mm. is be a prostitute. But they were called Joy Divisions in the book, and the rest is history. Oh, my God. I mean, it's just bad. Like, men are just... It's it's such a red flag that he was so into that book that he called his (laughs) band that. Yeah. There's actually a song, a Joy Division song called No Love Lost, where he reads an excerpt from the book. That's just so faggy. I mean, and I like Joy Division. Me too. But, yeah. I mean, it's every time I hear this, it's disturbing. I, I already know this fact because it is true that it's your favorite party fact, and I have heard you share it at parties before. And let me just say, it definitely doesn't bring the mood up. People don't know, and they need to know. But <laughs> every time I hear it, I just can't even wrap my head around the layers of... Of wrong that writing a book about a uh, book about your sister who survived the concentration camps, but it's porn. Yeah, (laughs) it's like you know, it's not totally porn, but it's like salacious. You know, he's getting into the details. He's getting into the details. Exactly, exactly. Ian Curtis was the original World War II boy. He was so into World War II in a way that I don't think Vivian Westwood or Sid Vicious or Susie Sue actually were like. Ian Curtis was into it. There's a lot of Joy Division songs are sort of about Nazis. He featured a propaganda image of a Hitler youth on the Joy Division EP in Ideal for a Living. That, men that are obsessed with World War II are always to be monitored with caution. Oh, no, yeah. they started. I mean, tr- clearly he was, like, not doing very well. Yeah, well, he did kill himself. <laughs> so. so, yeah, they started attracting actual neo-Nazis to their shows. Yeah, not, I mean, Nazis were drawn to the punk movement, too. Nazi punks fuck off. Oh, yeah, and Nazi chic is why. At the beginning of that song, Nazi punks fuck off, they say, overproduced by Martin Hannett. Martin Hannett was the producer for Joy Division, so it was a direct reference to what they did to the movement, which brings us into the 1980s when the neo-Nazis kind of ruined punk, and that sort of killed Nazi chic. Mm, that's funny. It's like, ironically, it stopped being controversial because it just became the norm in that movement. So it was more rebellious and contrarian to stop. Yeah, literally. However, you know, I think it lived on through high fashion. And mm. I think that's more because of the Night Porter and also just because mm-hmm. of Vivian Westwood. You know, Vivian Westwood ended up becoming a high fashion label. Yeah. Um, Christian Dior released a collection featuring Nazi-esque outfits designed by Galliano, which checks out if you know anything about his rant about Jews in that one Paris bar. <laughs> I don't know if I know about that one. Oh my god. He called a Jewish woman a, quote, ugly Jewish bitch, called Damn. another man a, quote, a fucking Asian bastard. He <laughs> asked one woman to shut up, then allegedly criticized her clothes 
hair, thighs, eyebrows, and makeup. He made 30 anti-Jewish insults in the space of 45 minutes, she said, end quote. <laughs> Sounds like you. So <laughs> That's literally, if you want to know what going out to a bar with me is like, it's making 30 anti-Semitic remarks in the space of 45 minutes. No, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, I think... Nazi beliefs in the high fashion world. Um, oh, yeah. You haven't even mentioned Coco Chanel. Oh, well, Coco, that's not even Nazi chic. Coco Chanel was literally a Nazi. Like, when I say, people don't understand what I mean when I say Coco Chanel was a Nazi. I'm not talking like, oh, she was racist. I mean, she was literally like a member of the National Socialist German Workers Party. She was a Nazi spy during World War II. Like, she worked for the Nazis. Um, she also advocated minimalism as an antithesis to the loud, bright, maximalist aesthetics of ethnic cultures, and also because fascists value ultra-perfection, and the simpler the things, the more perfect they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the kind of sterile... Yeah. Kind of, yeah. It's like how people are so angry that Greco-Roman statues were actually painted really bright colors, because it kind of destroyed that idea that Greeks had left them white on purpose because they valued whiteness and stuff. Right. Like, and the list goes on. Marc Jacobs and Louis Vuitton came out with a collection that was explicitly inspired by the Night Porter. Um, Carla Fendi of the Fendi brand came out and said, quote, I've always felt quite strongly about this aesthetic and it has informed my view of fashion as well as art and architecture, end quote. And she's talking about fascist aesthetics. Yeah, isn't there um, some super famous brand in one of those brutalist buildings? Yes! The Giorgio Armani Megastore in Milan is in a 1937 building designed by Enrico Gaffini. I think that's how you pronounce that. Yeah. He, he was a leading proponent of fascist architecture. Yeah, and Balenciaga opened up a store in Berlin a couple of years ago, and that was, like, entirely brutalist, clearly heavily inspired by that architecture. I've, I've actually been seeing brutalism and minimalism show up a lot in high fashion recently. I feel like most of it kind of leans towards the subversive basic kind of apocalypse chic stuff, but I, it's definitely brutalistic. Right. Yeah, I think high fashion has a tendency to lean into whatever the hottest global calamity is, our most recent one being climate change, hence global apocalypse themes. But yes, there are a lot of visuals in high fashion that are being pulled from Nazi iconography. So then, so we got kinksters, punks, surfers, underground filmmakers, deviants, and high fashion designers. And those are all, they're all to blame for bringing Nazi chic and Nazi iconography kind of into the mainstream. Yeah, and when you put it like that, that's the exact crowd of degenerates I'd want at my next birthday party. <laughs> yeah, I'll put in a word with my people. Right. <laughs> the influence of Nazi iconography on our culture is one of those things where it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's actually everywhere. First of all, Nazi imagery is our culture's go-to visual language for depicting a villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, they were not good at all, but they were literally iconic. Like, that, that image of a Nazi is recognizable from a mile away. The Nazi design sensibility is a huge part of why they were successful at garnering support from people. I mean, right. they had cunty caps, trench coats, knee-high leather boots, and Volkswagens. I mean, that's just a girl from the Lower East Side. <laughs> Yeah, with the way that being trad cath is getting cool, that literally yeah. is a girl from the Lower East Side. Um, but, you know, I gotta pull out the Susan Sontag quote, um, because Susan Sontag wrote, 
one of my favorite essays of all time about Nazi chic, and it's called Fascinating Fascism. And it was actually a response to a Lenny Riefenstahl film being shown at a feminist film festival, you know, because Lenny Riefenstahl was a female Nazi propagandist. Uh Oh, but she's a woman, so it is feminist. Right, she directed Triumph of the Will. Um, But yes, she's a woman, so, you know, strides. Um, But basically, Susan Sontag starts by quoting Nazi propaganda machine Joseph Goebbels, who says, quote, Politics is the highest and most comprehensive art there is, and we who shape modern German policy feel ourselves to be artists, the task of art and the artist being to form, to give shape, to remove the disease, and create freedom for the healthy. Mm-hmm. Sounds about way. Right. And then Sontag goes on to compare the more sexless communist art with the way sexier fascist art by saying, quote, The official art of countries like the Soviet Union and China aims to expound and reinforce a utopian morality. Fascist art displays a utopian aesthetic, that of physical perfection. Painters and sculptors under the Nazis often depicted the nude but were forbidden to show any bodily imperfections. Their nudes looked like pictures in a physique their nudes looked like pictures in physique magazines. In a technical sense, pornographic, for they have the perfection of a fantasy. In contrast to the asexual chasteness of the official communist art, Nazi art is both Puritan and idealizing. Sexuality converted into the magnesium of leaders and the joy of followers. The fascist ideal is to transform transform sexual energy into a spiritual force for the benefit of the community. The erotic, that is women, is always present as a temptation, but the most admirable response being a heroic repression of sexual impulse, end quote. Says it. Awesome. Yeah, it's super interesting that fascism is such a uniquely sexualized political movement because I feel like nothing has had the same impact on the world of degenerate sex fiends and high fashion since. Yeah, I mean, all the cool people were doing Nazi iconography. I mean, there is also a very famous quote that fascism. So Walter Benjamin was this writer, whatever, who wrote the famous essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Its Mechanical Reproduction. And he said, quote, the logical outcome of fascism is an aestheticization of political life. So he believed that fascism was the aestheticization of politics. So it's really baked in. Mm, oh, I see. That's That was its part of its goal from the very beginning. Right. The virgin communism versus the Chad fascism. Sex really does sell, even if you're Hitler, especially if you're Hitler. (laughs) I mean, it makes way more sense why people lead more fascist than communist. Because when you think of communism, you think of, like, planting tomatoes in a communal dirt patch. When you think of fascism, you think of, like, a dripped-out dude screaming in a crowd of cheering men and women. Sex selling is really good for propaganda. The people are attracted to what's attractive. Yeah. If you're pioneering a movement with a tagline that's kind of hard to market, like, like, uh, let's kill an entire ethnic group. I don't know. You know, then you kind of need to make people feel like they're hot for being a part of it. It's it's really the only way to hack into even the strongest of minds. Yeah, fascism comes with a very intense machismo. There's another quote from that same piece where Sontag says, quote, Hitler regarded leadership as sexual mastery of the quote-unquote feminine masses as rape. The expression of the crowds in Triumph of the Will is one of ecstasy. The leader makes the crowd come. Left-wing movements have tended to be unisex and asexual in their imagery. Right wing movements, however puritanical and repressive, the realities they usher in have an erotic surface. Certainly Nazism is sexier than communism, which is not to the Nazis' credit, but rather shows something of the nature and limits of the sexual imagination, end quote. 
You know what's proof that fascism is just sexy and it's not even, maybe it's not even about taboos. Maybe it is something inherently within fascism. In 1977, they tried to release Ilsa, the Tigress of Siberia, and where Ilsa rules a gulag in Siberia rather brutally. And it's just about her in a gulag rather than a concentration camp. Is- and it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't as iconic. The people weren't eating they it weren't, up. They weren't, people didn't eat it up. Yeah. But she's still being sadomasochistic. Right, but just but- in a gulag. <laughs> The, the gulag does not... They tried to make communism sexy and it didn't work. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, dominance and subordination are like the first things that come to mind when I think of fascism. And BDSM. Which is, I mean, yeah, like this... The sexual imagination is limited to domination and authoritarianism because of the normalization of abusive masculine, feminine sex and gender dynamics. Like, like Sontag said... Communism is unisex, and because that's so much harder to comprehend and define in a sexual context, because we don't have strict archetypes for it, it's way harder to simplify it to a kinky dynamic, which relies so heavily on those roles and stereotypes. Exactly. German philosopher Theodore Adorno said that people who are into fascism, what, like into fascism politically, not sexually. Mm. I mean, the people that are into fascism sexually too, but <laughs> um, he said that they want to replicate the relationship of a child and an authoritarian father with the relationship of a follower and an authoritarian state. I mean, mm. so basically fascism is daddy issues. Mm-hmm. Everything is daddy issues. Yeah, not me though. I don't have those. Yeah, I mean, same. Our loyal father, our loyal. <laughs> that was pretty. Uh, that was a pretty. <laughs> our loyal. <laughs> our loyal followers know which parent I have my Freudian hangups with. Mm-hmm, yes, and despite everything we do and say here, what's going to happen is not, in fact, a fatherless podcast. Which is why we're not fascist. <laughs> so, how does this kind of idea of fascist machismo take form in today's culture do you think that is a very very interesting question (laughs) i feel like we see it in the form of like the manosphere and andrew tate a little bit like his whole thing is that women should be controlled and obedient and there are like there is like a big contingents of women who dm him and try to like get his approval and like baddies that will have him on their shows and try to interview him and like be like am i the high value woman you want like he does he garners that kind of daddy issue type of woman um this belief that like everyone should be able to pull themselves up by the bootstrap life is about survival of the fittest the nuclear family with christian values is fundamental to like this renaissance of pure american culture women should be loyal virginal beautiful and maternal in order to be of high value and like men should focus on striving to be the most opportune physical form and striving to be an upstanding servant of god and i feel like that repression aspect kind of comes into play with that whole alpha male mentality of not focusing on love and sex with women, in fact, kind of antagonizing women as distractions from their financial goals. Or using women for their financial goals. Yeah, exactly. Like, they do that all to be kind of admired by other men and by women, but they're fiercely anti-gay and anti-woman. And, like, the rhetoric, while some of it is definitely believed by Tate himself, you know, our authoritarian leader, who's, like, I guess... The Hitler Hitler. of this analogy. (laughs) Yes, the Hitler of this analogy. Like, that kind of cult of personality... Um, is, is like who they are is a standard of the movement, this highly disciplined, extremely powerful, kind of strong-valued individual. I think a lot of what people said about Hitler's magnetism, it can also be found in Tate. So would you say that Andrew Tate has that Hitler riz? Yes. Got it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the alt-right and manosphere. I mean, the alt-right isn't really a thing anymore, but, you know, mm-hmm. the far right and the manosphere yeah. is clearly the manifestation of some of the leftover fascination of fascism that exists in people who are increasingly frustrated by the left's attempt to deconstruct gender roles and that 
does have that element of repression and the erotic undertones of enforcing gendered dynamics. I also will say that in the conception of the dirtbag left, one of the main goals of the movement was to kind of make leftism sexy, mm -hmm. which one of the many moves they made in order to, I'm assuming in order to achieve that goal is to move in a more right-wing direction by leaning into political taboos and focusing more on aesthetics and appeal than other leftists were. But ultimately, I do think we've strayed from the sexier aesthetics of fascism in the way that fascism actually shows up in the world now. Like, you don't really see people sexualizing the January 6th insurrectionists. Actually, you did. You you sexualized the January 6th insurrectionists. You literally dressed up as a slutty version of the QAnon shaman for Halloween. Yeah, and it was my best Halloween costume ever. And I already know about Nazi chic, so in a way mm. I was consciously doing it. Yes. I was consciously yes. doing a Nazi chic. It's true. They don't really have a distinct thing going on. Like, Andrew Tate's aesthetic isn't that different from any other male celebrities or, like, a rich guy's. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe that's kind of the functional choice, though, because it kind of feels like He's able to covertly slip into the mainstream because he has a mainstream look about him. You know, that he's not, he doesn't, he, if he wore a very distinctive outfit that like defined himself as like, <laughs> I'm imagining him in like an SS uniform yeah. or something, which is not hard to do, but definitely would kind of like foil his plans of getting uh, teenage boys to think he's cool. Right. I also feel like that would be like too gay for him. Like, yeah. unironically, it would be too gay for him. It's true. To wear a Nazi uniform. Yeah. There are still, like, sexual and machismo tones to fascism, but we've kind of lost the best part of it, which was the clothes. I can't believe we enshittified fascism. Yeah, we so would, though. <laughs> Actually, I just thought of someone who I think is doing a really good job of sexualizing modern fascists right now. Who? Doja Cat. Oh, <laughs> we yeah. would be remiss to ignore Doja Cat in this conversation. She has literally whored herself out to the alt-right bros on 4chan, is one of the biggest pop stars of today, and she posted a selfie wearing a Sam Hyde shirt, who, for those of you who don't know, was a very prominent alt-right internet figure back in the day. I feel like my biggest problem with her posting that sh picture of her with the shirt with him is that she let the fans convince her to take it down and then, like, reposted it with, like, an eye-rolling emoji with the shirt cropped yeah. out. Like, it was a cop-out. I feel like if you're going to be problematic and offensive on purpose, then don't back out. you got to say it with your chest. Oh, I completely agree. I think it was lame to take it down. you gotta, you got to commit to the You bit. just got to stand by it. Like, right. that's the only way you can come out with any kind of pride. It's the only way to come out on top. But I see your point. Yeah, she is kind of like at that intersection between being chronically online and having mainstream sex appeal. And that's kind of been her brand since Bitch on Macau. It's just kind of evolving or maybe devolving into <laughs> not just being online, but being in the trenches of the internet and like right. a lot of glorifying guys, that part. Right. A lot of guys on Twitter and 4chan are super into her doing all this because it feels like she's leaning into taboo that caters to them. When my girlfriend saw her perform, my girlfriend went to a Doja Cat concert. Doja Cat was wearing underwear that said PSYOP on the pussy. And obviously PSYOP is a term used in all political spaces. I mean, I thought that was funny. Like, pussy is a PSYOP. So true. But it does kind of have, you know, the word has a reputation of being used a lot by online political extremists. And paired with her other choices, like, she's obviously speaking to that niche. Or trying to speak to that niche. So, like, how Sid Vicious wore the swastika muscle tee, Doja Cat wears the Sam Hyde shirt, and the cycle of selling sex and pissing people off by leaning into fascistic imagery lives on. The torch has been passed and will be passed again, for our culture is obsessed with its own shadows. Oh, yeah. 
Exactly. I love that it is, at least it's like a black Jewish woman doing it this yes, time. That's who's true. hot. Yeah. And, and can twerk and throw it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, I mean, I think Doja is pissed because she is a terminally online person and she has a very kind of normie fan base. And I think she wants to think of her art as higher than that. So she's resentful and she's like trying to piss them off. I feel like I, I see a parallel even between her experience and then the Sex Pistols or other edgy punk bands of the time because kind of in order to reach any point of massive critical acclaim, you do have to sell out to an extent. And because they didn't really have a solid value system or like genuine beliefs they were sticking up for, the only way that that punk bands like the Sex Pistols could maintain feeling close to their edge as they became more normalized was to continue to up the ante of shock factor. And that's, I feel like, why some of that shock factor kind of falls short to me. Because a lot of the time... There's something vapid and clawing about it. It's not really about anything. And I feel like it's the same with Doja. Like, Doja's music isn't edgy. She makes the same pop music as she always did. The Sex Pistols didn't actually stand up for, like, civil rights or disrupting the status quo. They didn't They didn't say anything they meant. You know, they kind of, they talked about anarchy, and then they went and wore swastikas, which represent fascism, which is, like, the opposite of anarchy. You know, they were they were just making fun, angry music. So when they, they muddled their image with random kind of, like, offensive imagery... There's something that feels kind of try-hard about it. Yeah. If you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. Yeah, like that notion of just taking any angle that you have to in order to garner any kind of strong reaction from people and gain attention. I feel like we see that a lot today, but it's like... It's harder to do. I yeah, guess. I mean, I feel like we see that in politics all the time. I do think it's become harder and harder to like actually shock people nowadays. Like, you mm-hmm. know, Madonna was the most famous pop star of the '90s, and she like made a music video where she fucked Black Jesus. Well, if he wasn't act for the record, he was not actually Black Jesus. It was supposed to be like a saint, but people interpreted it as Black Jesus. And also, she did not actually get excommunicated from the Catholic Church. She just said that. I know this because I posted that Madonna got excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and my gay autistic friend whose special interest is religion sent me 10 paragraphs about how Madonna was not actually excommunicated from the Catholic Church. It's funny that like you have like a gay autistic friend who would know that information. Like you're my (laughs) gay autistic friend that would know that information. It's like you have one that's even more gay and even more (laughs) autistic than you. Yeah, he's my Emily. Yes. Which leads me to wonder like who is his his Emily? Emily? (laughs) You'll have to sword fight her at some point in your life I think. Yeah, that's really next level um but yeah i mean madonna got herself into a lot of controversy all the time you know she was condemned by the catholic church so that is true but it is harder to shock people nowadays i think the Mm -hmm. night porter was referenced in pop culture so many times it's insane Susie sue is the first i believe she was the first i mean her swastika outfits were always controversial but there is a photo where she was directly referencing the night porter but in 2008 when lady gaga wore the night porter outfit in her love game music video like literally nobody batted an eye nobody cared Yeah, I mean, we've gotten so far removed from a world where that iconography is immediately, like, terrifying and offensive. It's actually, I feel like that that fashion imagery is more associated with the cool fashion it was inspired by. Rather, it's like a simula- simulacrum thing. Like a simulac- That is a perfect, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. It, it's like the representation of the thing taking the forefront and replacing the thing. More people right. will have seen, you know, Tumblr posts inspired by the Night Porter than will know people who survived the Holocaust. Right, exactly, generation. exactly. Yeah, very postmodern. Um, and it wasn't the Nazis who made being a Nazi sexy. It was the other people who weren't Nazis making it sexy, like the underground erotic society 
Society of Berlin or mm-hmm. Vivian Westwood. <laughs> you know, it's just like the actual neo-Nazis of today aren't sexy. It's really, it's the dirtbag left that's doing the heavy lifting. Yep. I am, in a way, implying that Dasha Nekrasova is the modern-day Vivian Westwood, and I really don't like that. <laughs> I feel like she wouldn't hate that as much as you do. She would like that I I think she would that. like that. She would love that I said that. We've I talked about her too many times. It's only been two episodes of the new season. She's been mentioned three times. <laughs> you love to hate on her. I love to hate her. It's true. I'm not going to pretend like I don't love to hate her. I love to hate her. <laughs> and I think she's cute. And that... I've also said before, (laughs) and that's our dynamic here on this podcast. (laughs) I don't care about the dumb shit that she says, but she definitely is pedobating and sexing up the alt right. I will say that. (laughs) So you started the episode saying that our meme relationship with nine eleven is reminiscent of this Nazi chic thing, but we also kind of found that our relationship with the online kind of alt right aesthetics, like ironically, like dirtbag left stuff, kind of falls into that category too. Yeah, I mean, listen, nine eleven is hard to make sexy. I mean, (laughs) if you really want me to, I can try. But I think ultimately fascism prevails. I mean, the natural. You know, dynamic. Which is sexier, fascism or 9-11? Which is sexier, the Holocaust or 9-11? I'm saying the Holocaust. Um, <laughs> and the natural dynamics of dominance and submission that are prevalent in fascist I wish we could make are. that the, the title of <laughs> Which is sexier, 9-11 or the Holocaust? <laughs> but anyway... Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I mean, the natural dynamics of dominance and submission that are prevalent in fascist propaganda because they rely on natural, you know, gender dynamics and are also prevalent in BDSM for the same reason because whatever, it's taboo. People need to process their trauma. It's just natural. It's natural. BDSM and kink. Yeah. It's just natural. Nazi cool. sex role play is just natural. Nazi sex role play is natural. <laughs> I've, I've always tried to tell my girlfriend this. <laughs> She doesn't believe me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they had a cool look and a sexually charged power dynamic thing, and that's that's enough to keep most people going. Osama bin Laden simply didn't have that. <laughs> if he was hotter, this would have been a different story. Maybe we if Osama bin Laden was really hot. Maybe. Maybe there would have been. I mean, you're right in that Mia Khalifa is, I guess, the modern, the 9-11 equivalent of Ilsa Shewolf of the SS. Right. Which is, like, insane. Also, did you know that before she died, the woman that played Ilsa did Vegas weddings? Damn. In another life. <laughs> we used to fucking be a country. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I guess Mia Khalifa is, is that equivalent, I guess, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Um, I love her, though. Uh, yeah, and I, I really feel for Mia Khalifa. Yeah, Like, me too. I watched a me couple too. interviews with her, and that girl did not deserve everything that happened to her. We're a pro-Mia We love podcast. Mia Khalifa on what's going to happen, her. yeah. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. All of this is, like, kind of insane, and there's so much overlap and, like, cross-referencing. There's just something kind of amazing about all of it to me, like... Like, the cross-referencing of designs, this, like, the synthesis, digestion, and regurgitation of artists on all these different mediums to create the aesthetics that define each time period and, and all communally define our time period. It's like the way that politics and opinions and artistic visions and these cultural attitudes work together to create what's wrong and right at a time. And how what's, what's right and wrong isn't synonymous with what's cool and what's not. Like, there's never just... Is. It never is. In fact, what's not... What's wrong is often what's cool. Yeah. Because humans love taboos. We love a taboo. 
There's something really human about all of it. Like, despite it obviously being problematic that Nazi chic has taken all these different forms, you know, people trying to process this great tragedy, albeit through, you know, inappropriate means, it's just like, I don't know. There's something about humans aren't really made to be appropriate. They're meant to be explorative and, like, we culturally shed what doesn't work and we keep what does and we keep on like, you know, moving and redefining things. And there's just, ultimately there's a little bit of everything and everything else. And I think that that's cool. And on that note, thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at what's going to happen pod or on Twitter at WGH pod. And we just posted a new Patreon episode. So make sure to subscribe and go check that out. And from a 1970s exploitation film where I'm a naughty prisoner and Evangelia is a sexy SS guard. <laughs> Why do I have to be the SS guard? Because you're only a fourth Jewish. This has been what's going to happen. <laughs>